I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 383. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel. And thanks to Rob Grundle for designing the Jazz or Bust logo. I am in Nashville, Tennessee, as I record this, but by the time you hear it, I will be in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I'm headed today, actually, to hang out with uh, Donald Brown and do a poetry reading on Friday, the 22nd, this this coming Friday, June 22nd, 2012, Uh, and I'm doing it right after the Alive After Five concert, which is at the Knoxville Museum of Art. That's at 7 and then at 9, if you go to 1006 Luttrell Street, L-U-T-R-E-L-L, I'll be doing a poetry reading there and talking about my Jazz or Bust tour. So if you are in Knoxville, I encourage you to come out and uh, check that out and support independent arts. Let me see if I can get Iggy drinking on the mic. That sound, if you can hear it, is the sound of the world's greatest dog. If you go to uh, jasoncrane.org, I've been posting tour diaries every day of the tour so far, and uh, the last few days have included at least one photo every day of uh, Iggy, his formal name is Igor, who is the dog of uh, the very talented saxophonist Evan Cobb here in Nashville, with whom I've been staying. Nashville has been amazing. It's uh, man, I, it's incredible how much has been packed in. It was uh, it was lucky staying with Evan because uh, he's very plugged into the local scene, and so I got to to hang out with lots of great people, um, the, some of the Wootens and uh, Jeff Coffin, and see a bunch of great music. Uh, it's just been a, an incredible, incredible time here in Nashville. I feel, I feel like I've packed as much into three days here as I did into, you know, two weeks in the, in the rest of the tour. Uh, coming up, I'm going to be in Knoxville, as I mentioned, and then from there, uh, it's slightly nebulous for a few days, but I think I'm going to end up in Durham, North Carolina, possibly stopping through Asheville, possibly stopping through Charlotte. And then I go to Atlanta, where I'll be interviewing Matthew Kaminsky, who's the organist for the Atlanta Braves, and I'll actually be spending time with him up in the booth while he plays for a Braves game, uh, and doing some other interviews in Atlanta, and then heading to Alabama, first to Auburn, Alabama, where I'll be doing a poetry reading on the 29th, uh, and on the 30th, I'll be doing a talk about the tour. And then from Auburn... I go probably to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and then I think to New Orleans. And then I think I may actually go um, up to Pennsylvania to hang out for a few weeks uh, with my kids and then back out on the tour uh, going into the Southwest and Texas and then the West Coast and on. So uh, many, many months of travel still to come, which I'm very excited about. So enough about that. Recently, I was in Washington, D.C., and uh, while I was there, I met just two wonderful human beings who are also incredible musicians, Janelle and Anthony. They have an album on Cuneiform Records called Where is Home? 
And just to give you a quick idea of the kind of people they are, uh, I interviewed them up in Silver Spring, Maryland, where Cuneiform is based, and, uh, you know, had a nice interview, and then they were on tour. So it just so happened that a few days later, I was doing a poetry reading in Richmond, and they were there that night in Richmond. And so on the way to their gig, I mean, driving to their actual show, they came to my poetry reading, which I was just very moved by. You know, it was not only was it not the kind of thing they had to do, but it was the kind of thing that was slightly difficult to do, actually. Uh, and so then I was able to go see them play, and it was uh, it was really wonderful. The, the live experience of Janelle and Anthony is really something to see. Uh, but you do get to capture a ton of that on record, and hopefully here in this interview. So we'll hear some music from Where Is Home. We're going to hear the track Big Sur first, and then we'll hear from Janelle and Anthony. My guests are the cellist Janelle Lapine and the guitarist Anthony Pirog. They are Janelle and Anthony together, and it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you. So you guys have just released uh, a wonderful record uh, called Where Is Home, which I have to say has, uh, just besides liking the music, the the idea of it, and in fact the idea of Where Is Home is really resonating with me at this moment. So it kind of dropped into my life exactly as that question was becoming present in my own life. And I thought maybe you guys could talk about just the origin of the, the Where Is Home concept, and how the, the title came about and what it what it means for you even beyond the music. Oh, well, um, first of all, we were living in many, many places over a five-year period. Um, we lived in, I think, I think I moved 10 or 11 times and Anthony something like nine times. So it was a very transient period of time for us. Um, also, I had let go of a family, old family land that 
was just, you know, five, six generations of my family had lived there. This is Wedderburn? Wedderburn, yeah. yeah. Um, you should probably tell people about that because it is... Sure. It doesn't sound real when you just read a description of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and even when you went there, it didn't seem real. Um, around it was Tyson's Corner, just this uh, mall. <laughs> but the suburbs of Washington, D.C., um, huge homes and lots of just like tiny suburbs everywhere and that then uh inside Wedderburn was just 12 13 cottages um, hand built by my ancestors great great uncle George and his brothers they all built these houses and um there was a piano in every cottage because it was a time before radio and entertainment was music you know that you made yourself (laughs) Um, also there were ponds everywhere and, um, certainly virgin forest, um, which stood up until uh, about seven, eight years ago. So that was the beginning of, you know, this feeling of, well, where is home? (laughs) Because that place, uh, which was very much a fairy tale land for me, um, and Anthony also, because he would visit me there periodically, you know, we would play music together. That's how we started playing music um basically once that place was destroyed you know um had to start examining this idea like where is home I don't know if this is too much of a stretch to say, but the music on this record feels to me to also be, uh, I don't know, rootless always sounds like a pejorative term, and I don't mean it that way, but it seems to it seems to embrace so many things that it's difficult to point at one thing and say, well, this is what it is, or this is, here's the core thing, and all these things are added onto it. It just seems like it's music that expands to contain whatever it is that either one of you is interested in at any moment. I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not, but. Yeah, I think so, and that's not something that we're intentionally trying to do. Um, we both have a lot of different interests in music. Um, I was I studied jazz in school. I've also been very interested in country guitar styles, finger style guitar, um, and Janelle's been interested in lots of different styles. So, I mean, it just kind of comes together like that. 
it's hard to explain how it happens. But. Can you can you talk? Take any one piece on this record and give us an idea of kind of its its origins. How how some piece on the record began and then how it worked out to become how you worked through it to become what it was on the album. Well, for Big Sur, I wrote that one for the most part. Um, the challenge in the beginning for me was to how to make this not just always be a cello and guitar duo. How can we make it exciting and different and play a set without it being the same? So I bought a 12-string guitar, baritone guitar, just to have different kind of textures. Um, and so for that, I just decided, why don't I write a song on 12-string guitar? And I kind of came up with this bass line and then the melody and I don't really know. I just wrote it. There was, and I just wanted to do it on a 12 string guitar so it would have a different kind of, a brighter feel. Does that have a profit on it too? Is that that would be Janelle? Okay. Yeah, I was really interested in using the profit um, synth in the bass, um, which is kind I, of a vintage synthesizer from the yes. the earlier days of synths. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't know what it was, but I, it was looming right there next to me in the studio, the brink where we work, which is also like a wonderland of uh, vintage gear. Basically, it's just amazing. But um, yeah, the bass there it was it was interesting to me to expand the sonic range of the songs just something i'm actually interested in in general for our albums especially this one where um the sonic range will be quite large but then stripped down suddenly for uh instance auburn road which is just simply janelle um Janelle and Anthony cello and guitar (laughs) without any loops no electronics no harpsichord nothing you know so it's nice to kind of go from one to the other when you perform these songs live what happens to the songs that had a lot of layering in them well we create those layers um you know as best we can um it's interesting our first album i wasn't quite into electronics just yet i was just dipping my toes into the electronics world um and uh, so Anthony's doing most of the looping in the first album, but our um, album now, you know, both of us are creating these things. I, I kind of think of them as blankets, you know, of sound, of, tam- you know, create beautiful timbres, and then um, it creates a, a kind of movement, you know. So throughout the song, and your ears kind of just uh, continually come back to this loop that's coming. So the cello and the guitars together, two loops, it's kind of nice. Don't you think? 
I think that it, it's challenging to make just two instruments sound big on a recording. So when we play it live, there's a very big sound, <laughs> even though we may have one loop. And we added a lot of textures to kind of get the sound that we get live. Even though there's no piano, it just makes it sound bigger. I, I don't know. Are those uh, static elements and then you are you know, performing and occasionally improvising around them? Or can those those blankets or beds also be changed while you're actually performing? We have these compositions and they're, they're kind of loose um, in that we have a head and we solo and then there's a head. So the improvisation in between the melodies can change length and the dynamics are different every show um but they're it's pretty composed and then we do the improv in between the interludes yeah and sometimes we'll you know have a plan to change the loop structure so that you know we have our b section or whatever i'm actually hoping on our next record to do a different you know different forms not just a jazz or pop form you know head you know improv head it's a little bit contrived at this moment <laughs> on this record because we do it so much but i'm looking forward to expanding into different forms you know probably worth talking about how you both got individually to where you are as musicians, especially because you, I mean, in Janelle, in your case, you play an instrument most associated with fairly regimented performance styles I mean, in the classical music world, where it's, you are primarily performing uh, very specifically someone else's musical vision. And, uh, and yet you have kind of arrived at this place where what you play is all about adventure and experimentation and not knowing what's going to happen next all the time. And I wonder where in your musical upbringing you started to think, oh, music could be that way too, or did you always think that since the beginning? First, I could say that I've always been listening to a lot of different kinds of music, even when I was in the classical tradition, focusing really intently. Um, even when I was like in high school, I dressed like a total punk. You know, I was listening to Sonic Youth obsessively, um, I guess what, um, where I started actually writing music and getting into the creative aspect of that work 
um, happened really when um, my friends would come and play music with me late at night. Um, I would light a bonfire and we would just play. And we, you know, Anthony was studying jazz. Um, our friend John Lee was studying jazz. I was studying classical music and other musician friends. Um, I think it was just kind of a release for us because we would just, you know, improvise. That was my first taste of that. And I would also improvise a lot on my own, just quietly, but I thought there was no validity to it or it was nothing, you know, like I thought it was beautiful. But I do remember this one story when I was, I think, like, I think I was nine years old and a teacher asked, does anyone play piano? And I was like, I do, but I don't play piano at all. And I never had lessons. So I just got up there and started playing and she really scolded me for that, you know, but I was like, this is called clouds. And then I just started going for it. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was like literally crying almost because I thought it was so beautiful. And she was just like, you haven't been taking lessons. That was awful. You know, and it happened one other time with my cello teacher also in the string class, you know. So, you know, I think I've always had like an interest in it, but I've been told very firmly that if it wasn't a certain way, that it wasn't really valid. So I think just most recently when I started getting into composing and actually Anthony had to be regimented with me, Leaving the Woods is my composition. He had to be like, I'm coming back in 20 minutes and if you haven't written a song, I would be really <laughs> mad. Thank you for that, Anthony. Well, I think, I mean, that story you told and anyone who listens regularly to this show will know that I've said this a thousand times. I've always I always say on this show that I think kids learn kids improvise and then they it's beaten out of them basically mm -hmm. and then if they're lucky they might pick it up again and have to relearn what they already knew how to do and I think that story you told perfectly illustrates that idea that when you're young all you know how to do with your instrument is improvise there you do not have the technical facility to do anything other than see what sounds it can make and then someone tells you, well, these are the sounds it's supposed to make. And then if you're lucky, maybe you'll figure out, oh, I can do other things too. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Anthony, for your uh, approach to the guitar, I mean, it's it's less hard to understand how someone who studied jazz ends up where you end up. But I'm interested how you ended up studying jazz in the first place because it's certainly not the, the oh. most common of musics for people at roughly our age. Um, yeah, I mean, I wanted to study music in college, so it seemed like either classical or jazz is what they teach. Because, I mean, up till college, um, I was playing different kinds of things. Um, a lot of blues, because um, I w was hearing Howling Wolf and stuff like that very young. Um, I was really into surf. I was really into rockabilly and country. And being from this area, um, it's hard not to ignore the whole Danny Gatton, Roy Buchanan thing, this Telecaster approach to playing. So... I was playing jazz a little bit in high school, and I was improvising in a trio, um, and I just had a lot of fun doing that. It was like free improv, just for fun. And then when I got to school, yeah, it was jazz was the thing to work on.
I think I'm right in remembering that you were also kind of into the noise scene at one point. Is that fair to say? Back then? Yeah, or uh, since, I guess, post-college or post-college, I was. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we both are involved in the uh, DC experimental scene, um, and that kind of revolves around Sonic Circuits, which is an annual festival, and they put on shows throughout the year, at, usually at Pyramid Atlantic in uh, Silver Spring. Maryland, and yeah, um, I got interested in doing noise, or just like improvisation is what I call it. Sure, it's just solo guitar, but it's pretty noisy. So, and uh, does that involve like, like preparing the guitar in ways, or I don't really prepare the guitar. I use a lot of effects and loops, and I guess what I'm trying to do is not make it sound like a guitar at all. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, it's just something that seemed like a challenge. A lot of people I listen to do that, so... Kind of keeping in mind that this is a, a lay audience, but a but a smart and beautiful one, uh, I'm always curious about how guitarists end up with whatever particular bag of effects they actually have, because it seems like the choices are almost limitless, I mean, and but budgets are not. How do you... It would seem that way. <laughs> yeah. um, so how do, I come, how do I choose my pedals? Yeah. Um, there's this really great guitar store called Action Music, and I had just a basic setup, like an overdrive, distortion, delay, and then I started going there, and they had tons of boutique pedals, and they saw I was interested, and they started just getting me excited about them. So, um, I don't know. There's, I'd also see pedals that people that I like, I'd see what they use, and I'd try it out, and if it, there's, I mean so many different types of fuzz pedals i don't know is it like kind of learning and almost learning a, a new instrument or each time no it's not not that as hard. not it's, as it's just as a as different that. sound and i mean each pedal presents a different kind of limitations or i mean it does it's pretty it's it's easy to figure out i mean sure. just, you hit a switch <laughs> and it'll go like or something um <laughs> but i mean the problem is like when Janelle and I play or something like I think at a point I was traveling to gigs with 19 pedals but I didn't get them all at once so I figured out how they work together but um yeah it's been fun <laughs> sure Janelle you um you alluded to this before but will you talk about how you and Anthony got together musically and when it kind of went beyond just everybody around a bonfire to oh I think this pairing is something we should explore Hmm. Yeah, at that time, I was studying classical music at George Mason University, but I was also getting a minor in world music. So I was traveling to the Netherlands, and um, eventually I went to India to study, study North Indian classical music um, in the vocal style, um, and with a cellist, actually, uh, which was really fascinating. Hmm. Um, I was sitting on the floor cross-legged playing um, with the Indian uh, ornamentations and um, the really fine, fine tuning that Indian musicians play with. How do you actually hold the cello when you're sitting on the floor? Um, basically, you sit on the cloth, okay. and there's like a little loop at the end of the cloth, and you put the end pin through that. But the end pin is not really there, or maybe right. there's some kind of something that holds on to it. Okay. And, and really, there are only a couple people doing this in India because of the pure... I think the only reason really is because you have to sit in a chair, and it's just not normal in that part of the world to sit in a chair. Sure. So, um 
my teacher Saskia Raude Haas she was the one who started getting me into that at that same time uh, she gave me her first instrument what I bought from her which has uh, eight sympathetic strings uh, resonance strings that sit under the fingerboard mm. and so when you bow the top strings um, the lower sympathetic strings ring sympathetically oh, wow. <laughs> and they're, it's a really glorious instrument um, and there are only a couple of them made in the world really um so I'm really happy to have that, and it, it, there are little splashes of that on our record and some other records I did recently, one with Avon Kong and um, Susan Alcorn. Um, called with whom you played at the Stone, too, is that right, in New York? Did you do Susan, a... Yes. Yeah, um, okay, right. That was a couple years ago, and Jessica Kenny. Yeah. Um, but getting back to your question, um, yes, I had just come back from the Netherlands uh, studying Indian music, and then uh, Anthony and I got together pretty much permanently at that point I was also touring churches at that time so I was kind of playing with this woman we were playing classical music and it was really wonderful to play in these spaces like gorgeous rooms and such um, that's where I kind of cut my teeth on performing in general and it was also my first paid gig you know <laughs> touring so I didn't care where I was playing you know what I mean <laughs> but they just happened to be pretty nice people you know um, in any case, uh, we started composing right away because uh, we wanted to sell the record while I was on the road, and we sold a good amount of them while I was away. And then when I w we would come back together, we would play the Galaxy Hut in Arlington or these various Sanka in Maryland. Did you know, uh, I mean, was there some was there some point at which one of you said we should really try to pursue this, this yeah, pairing? Yeah, I mean, just when we recorded the record. I mean, we mm. wrote it in a week. I was like, look, we need a CD because this is awesome. <laughs> and, and we recorded it in a week. We wrote it in a week, you know. It was just quick. Um, it's actually the same for Where's Home. We wrote it very quickly. Um, the difficulty was uh, just finding the right place to record it we actually recorded it in three different studios almost fully <laughs> not the whole thing really but you know it wasn't really working for whatever reason and then money was difficult and 
whatever. Um, but now that we're at the brink, we feel really, really settled there. Where is that? That's in Centerville, Virginia. Okay. And what is it about that place that made it a good home for this record? Well, for me, it's just the warmth of the gear that he uses. And also, uh, my granny, he has a, a very fine-tuned ear for tone. And he really gets the sound of, you know, the the sound that I want, which is like a rich, dark you know, warm sound for the cello. Um, he's also really, really patient with us, you know, when changing things or, you know, adding crazy instruments suddenly. Um, Anthony? Um, he is a good friend of ours, so it's just a very relaxed situation. When you go into the studio, a lot of times there's a lot of pressure because it's expensive. There's only so much, there's only so much time. Um, and we could really just relax and explore different ideas in this situation because of his generosity and like Janelle said, patience with us. Yeah, it sounds like it really gives you guys a chance to use the studio as an instrument. I mean, to, to really oh, see what definitely. can be done. Yeah, that was great. And there are so many different kinds of instruments there. I mean, should I list a few? <laughs> yeah, tell us a few. You walk in, you see a harpsichord. Um, <laughs> you know, like you do. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> Nine foot concert grand. There's like two Mellotrons. Wow. Uh, B3s everywhere, just analog <laughs> synth after analog synth. And it's just inspiring to be in that place. Um, and Mike's a great guy. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, it, just kind of looking at the way you guys are touring now, it feels a lot more to me like the kind of um, almost like folk circuit tours that people do where, I mean, you've. You're playing, certainly you're playing in places that welcome experimental music, but it it just has kind of a community feel to it. I mean, you, uh, Janelle, were talking to me before we were recording about a gig you played a couple nights ago where there were kids in the audience and people of all ages, and that kind of thing just doesn't happen that much in, I think, this kind of, like, left-of-center music. I mean, it just, it seems like, it, like especially in New York, where I've been, it draws a very particular crowd, and when I walk into a show, I can name every person in the audience, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, the story I used to illustrate this, I don't know if I've ever done it on the show, is I saw a picture of Derek Bailey playing uh, in a small space in New York, and standing behind him in this room, well, there were four people, and I went, that was twenty. The picture taken 20 years ago, I went to a show, another experimental music show, in that same space like, I don't know, six months, seven months ago, and three of those four people were in the audience who were in this photo from 20 years ago. I mean, <laughs> which just kind of said it all to me about... And so I'm excited if you guys are are able to bring in other folks and, and kind of reaching a wider audience. I'd, I'd like to hear just more about that, what your experience has been like on this tour so far. Well, just playing in general, it's been great because we've played in so many different types of situations where we'll be playing an art gallery a rock club, a jazz club, house shows, huge, like a big theater. And um, it was surprising to me at first, but we don't just do, like we said earlier, one thing. It's a mix of a lot of things, so it's not always just freely improvised. We, uh, we're trying to balance that with melodic compositions. I just read something. The City Paper in Washington mentioned something that I have never really considered, but... Basically, they call it exper um, approachable experimental music. Um, I think it's approachable because it's tonal, really, you know, and it's not always drone-oriented.
I know you've done this for me once off the mic, but maybe you can talk about the place you played a couple nights ago that you were telling me okay. about. Uh, I think that might help to il- kind of illustrate what we're talking about. Oh, okay. So we played at this place called the Old Parish Hall, which is just a old, old building, one of the first uh, built in College Park, Maryland. And um, a friend of ours asked us to play there. Uh, she had a grant and um, was gathering musicians she looked up to. And yeah, there were children in the hall. There were uh, elderly people, um, all kinds of people. It was really beautiful. And no one <laughs> ran out screaming, <laughs> thankfully. People bought records and um, people had really beautiful comments um, of all ages also. And uh, I heard some stories from little kids talking about how they really wanted to get into singing. And I said, you should try some electronics just for fun, you know. Can you, uh, do the two of you ever collaborate, uh, kind of bring third voices into this thing that you do? And and if you do, how does that work? So um, Mike Reyna, actually the uh, engineer, uh, sat in on Mellotron (laughs) for Viennician Life. And... <clears throat> he really elegantly laid down some beautiful stuff there. And the first album, Anthony asked Larry, um, well, why don't you talk about it? Yeah, uh, the first album, our friend Larry Ferguson, who's a drummer in the area, uh, came in to record some drums for the fifth anniversary edition of our first album that's being released on vinyl. Uh, it's just on Cricket Cemetery label, uh, Cricket Cemetery Records. Um, it just seemed like that song always needed drums, so he added them. But as far as composing, no. Mm. We, we've we had a guest on each of our albums, but that's pretty much... They've, they've factored into something that already existed. Exactly. Case, right. It's adding another texture that we can't and we wanted. Sure. So, or we felt was appropriate. Can you talk about how you ended up on Cuneiform? Um, well, we finished the album... And we'd seen Steve and Joyce around and um, just at the shows in the experimental scene. And we were just talking and saying, why don't we just send them the album, see what happens. And they wrote back and said they really liked it. That's all that happened. (laughs) It was like (laughs) one email. Yeah, it was really exciting. (laughs) Um, But we, yeah, it's the, the whole thing with that has just been great and we're really excited about the whole situation. And uh, you mentioned the DC experimental scene. What is that like? Where does it happen? Uh, how often do things happen? I mean, there are shows all the time at Pyramid Atlantic, which is an art gallery just up the street, Silver Spring, Maryland, like I said earlier. And they bring people from out of town, and local musicians are playing. And then there's the <coughs> annual festival, which is just fantastic. We've played everyone since 2007 and we've had some really great opportunities through the festival and And i think that's coming up at the end of september it's always in september and janelle my first time playing with sonic circuits was actually a really nice experience um with a composer named arturus boomstinas he wrote a piece for a laptop and two cellists um 
and we were wearing headphones for the score so we would only hear our part in the headphones so it was kind of cool we did it at the Kennedy Center um, so it was nice to be on the stage at the Kennedy Center and see everyone in the audience feeling like shifting around like kind of <laughs> leaving <laughs> that was my first time seeing that happen at the Kennedy Center performance like in the middle of a piece because it was quite long anyway <laughs> um but it was also cool to wear headphones and then play this really interesting music with Arturis um, and Doug Poplin. Um, and that was my first experience, and I thought, okay, well, we'll be part of this scene for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I'm not sure that for many people, watching people walk out would be the thing that cements their <laughs> their loyalty to a particular genre <laughs> of music. This is great. We're driving everyone out of this hall. This is awesome. Let's play it again. This is why we started playing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. It's a very twisted but lovely reason to get along. <laughs> I know both because I'm a brilliant researcher and because you just told me seconds ago um, that you also have training in Persian classical music. Will you talk about that? Uh, something about which I know nothing. I do know something about Indian classical music. But. Yes, uh, I played with the Chakovac Ensemble, which is a community orchestra, actually, um, with setars and tars, violins, and I'm the only cellist. So sometimes they have a harp who has detuned her strings with quarter tones. What um, is a tar? I know what a sitar is. A tar is a just it's well, my teacher calls it the mother of the guitar, but uh, it has I think three strings. Okay. It has movable frets. Okay. Yeah, and you pluck it with a plectrum. Cool. And how did you get involved in that music? Um, the director of that organization, Dr. Nader Majd, he uh, kind of really wanted a cellist involved, and so I've been playing with them for over 10 years now and it's been really beautiful uh, working with them they have a singer who flies in from London who um, sings with us and everyone's very kind and devoted to that music um, and I was kind of thrown into the fire of it it's funny like he'll give me a score and um, I'll start to read it and he said oh no 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 play it three steps down <laughs> like three whole steps down so I have to transpose it three steps down which is not very typical for cello players <laughs> and I was in college when I started it so. but it was awesome because you know it made me think very quickly and now you know playing that music you know sure you want to go five steps sure we can do that <laughs> why not
I, maybe I just don't know enough, but it's it seems like there must be some differences in the way you approach the cello because you're playing with instruments that are not like Western tuning, right? I mean, this is not kind of typical diatonic scale music. Am I right about that? Mm, yes. Um, they use the quarter tone system. Right. So it's just a difference in pitch, but it's nice also to bring that in with Janelle and Anthony uh, sometimes in my improvisations. Um, sometimes people will approach me later after a concert and ask me, what was that note? And it's funny because they don't know they don't know they they don't know how to explain it because it's so strange right it was like c quarter sharp or something and that's exactly difficult to express right? yeah but it, it's kind of fun to do that because people say oh what was that you yeah know? and it i feel like it opens a whole gate you know gateway to some really beautiful structures so this this show succeeds primarily based on my own ignorance so to uh play quarter tones <laughs> on the cello uh Given that you have no frets, it's just all about ear training, right? Is mm-hmm. that right? So you yeah. just have to find the very specific pitches in between the ones where you're used to finding yeah. from your original and training. And you develop a sense of these things, the placement of your fingers. But also sometimes I'm playing the Indian cello doing that. Um, or I call it the cello sympathetique now because I'm not only playing Indian music on it. Okay. Um, but Plus cello sympathetique sounds pretty cool. It so. does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. But it's smaller, so my fingers you know, are now closer together if I play that one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's more of a sense of where the pitch is and uh yeah you have to settle into that i wanted to ask you before when you were talking about your magical cello do the uh do the resonant strings inside are they tunable or are they always the same pitches yeah you can tune them to any mode you're playing um certainly so they're they're not merely adding sound they are in fact reinforcing the harmonic structure of what you're playing yes on the cello mm-hmm. oh, that's really cool uh, you guys have a lot of upcoming performances and all kinds of cool combinations with other interesting performers and all throughout the country. Can you talk about those things? So first, we're going to be playing um, on the 23rd in June with Charlie Rao and Conchetta Abate and Jessica Pavone and Mary Halverson. And that's going to be at, at Sycamore in Brooklyn. And it's nice because it's violin and guitar, viola and guitar, cello and guitar be interesting this is a weird little i just totally busting in on you and it's going to be horrible but it's very strange to be sitting on a porch in silver spring maryland talking about a club that was very very close to my house (laughs) and a gig that i cannot go see because i'll be who knows where at that moment it's just very strange but sycamore is an awesome awesome room i really love it there so it's exciting it's just a basement and it's wonderful oh it's below a bar slash flower shop and really you can't go wrong with that combination (laughs) so So that's the 23rd of June yes. in New York City in Brooklyn. Okay. And then we also have a festival that we're playing for kind of audiophiles. Uh, we're going to be, it's a capital audio fest. Um, we should have both of our final releases at that um, performance. And that's July 13th through 15th. So we're playing two nights of those. And I think Mike Formanak is also playing um, with some ensemble. And he's based in Baltimore, right? Baltimore. So he's fairly local. Yes, in Baltimore. So, and then uh, we're also going to be touring the Midwest in July, early July, and then um, mid uh, the West Coast in August. And we have hopes of going to Europe sometime in the fall or spring. So, if anyone has any ideas, please give us a you know ring. And does that apply to the Midwest and West Coast too? Do you still have room in your schedules to add yes. shows if people? Because we're t- booking everything ourselves at the moment. Sure. So it, you know. Until we settle in with a booking agent or something. Great. 
Did you want to add something there? Yeah. We also have a show in D.C. on June 24th through Transparent Productions. Where is that? Uh, Bohemian Caverns. Okay. Uh, in addition to this being out on CD and I assume also available as a digital download, is that right? You also put it out in the only proper format, which is vinyl. Will you talk about why you did that? <laughs> Yeah, we had to twist Steve's arm a little bit, but he uh, was open to it. Um, we promised him we would sell the records at least enough to pay him for a certain portion of them. So far, so good, you know. Um, and it, it's just so nice to have an artifact of our work in this album, I think, deserves that. My guests are Janelle and Anthony. Their new album is called Where is Home? And it's really fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough. And it's been such a pleasure to meet you both. And I wish you a lot of success. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Jason. That's music from Janelle and Anthony, their new album, Where is Home, on Cuneiform Records. And if they come anywhere near where you are, definitely go see them because uh, the live experience is, is really, really amazing. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Munat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. You can become a member of the show at thejazzsession.com slash join, and it is your recurring memberships uh, that help keep me going while I'm on the tour. You can also make a one-time donation and get the thank you gifts for the tour by going to thejazzsession.com slash tour. So in one case, you make a membership and a little money comes out of your account each month or every year if you do it yearly. And in the other way, you make a one-time donation and I send you some thank you gifts uh, from the tour, including uh, postcards and t-shirts and all kinds of things, depending on which level you donate at. And also, something I added last week, you can donate a book to my Kindle, which actually quite a few people have done, and it's great for me because I don't have to spend uh, any of the very sparse travel money 
on having something to read, and then I have things to read. So uh, that's another way you can contribute, and you can find all of that at thejazzsession.com slash tour. To see the photos and uh, hear the non-jazz interviews and hear recordings of my poetry readings and all the other things that go along with this tour, the kind of daily stories that you don't get on the podcast, go to jasoncrane.org. That's also where my poetry lives, and you can find my book there. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. And holy God, that's a lot of stuff. So, you know, do some of that as you please. Uh, and more importantly, though, please get out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.